Will you take your Bible, please, and meet me in Psalm 100? Psalm 100. <clears throat> you have to forgive uh, if you can see a little uh, protrusion here from my cheek. I've got a cough drop there, and that's, uh, forgive me for that, but that's the better alternative. So, um, Psalm 100. On Thursday of this week, people across the country will, will gather with friends and family to celebrate Thanksgiving Day. Historically, this annual holiday harkens back to 1621 when Plymouth colonists and Wampanoag Indians shared in a three-day festival held in gratitude for the bountiful harvest that season. This became a yearly custom throughout the 1600s. Then, more than a century later, in 1789, President George Washington officially declared a day of national thanksgiving that he set for November 26th each year. Not until 1863, under the direction of President Lincoln, in gratitude, for the pivotal victory at the Battle of Gettysburg was Thanksgiving moved to the fourth Thursday of every November. And with the exception of a very brief diversion in 1939 through 41, it was then where uh, President Franklin Roosevelt at the time, in wanting to stimulate the economy coming out of the uh, Depression, moved Thanksgiving to the third Thursday, wanting to give merchants and retailers an extra week of Christmas shopping. But in 1941, uh, really at national outcry, he admitted the mistake and set it back to the fourth Thursday, and it has been this way ever since. As one can see, Thanksgiving Day has a long and meaningful history. But long before a national holiday was established in this country, the act of giving thanks has been important to people everywhere from every age and central to the community of God's people from the very beginning. Thanksgiving is, after all, not merely a generic expression of gratitude, but rather a primary means of recognizing the immense goodness of the Lord. And Psalm 100 captures this idea very, very well. Literally dozens... It's no exaggeration, dozens of songs and hymns have been written and arranged around this single psalm. From William Keith to Isaac Watts and centuries past, from Keith and Kristen Getty to Chris Tomlin in the present day, artists from every age have used this psalm to encourage the people of God in worship. It has been a regular part of Jewish worship since antiquity and remains central to Christian worship to this very day. Like all psalms, it is a call to worship, specifically to worship by giving thanks. Many psalms, of course, contain threads of thanksgiving, but this one is unique. As the inscription above the opening verse attests, you might read it there with me, this is the only psalm, only Psalm 100 is directly labeled a psalm for giving thanks. 
It is as if the psalmist is saying, if you want to grow in gratitude, let me show you how. Indeed, the whole intent of the psalm is to inspire worship as you gratefully recall who God is and the many good things he has done. So with that, will you read it along with me? Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. And his steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. Father, we thank you for the time that we share now in your word. We thank you for this time that rolls around every year where we pause as a nation, really, to give thanks for the many, many blessings we have and have experienced. We thank you for the unique way in which the people of God give thanks from a very personal uh, interaction with you and for the great work you've done in our lives, first and ultimately in calling us to yourself, taking us from spiritual death to a place of new and eternal life, in Christ, calling us out from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so I thank you for every person who is gathered in this sanctuary this morning. I thank you for the, for the testament that each one is, the, uh, the way in which each of us testifies to your goodness and grace, all to your glory. And I pray that this morning as we Walk through this very brief and simple psalm. I pray that you would uh, instruct us and encourage our hearts. O Holy Spirit, would you enable our speaking and our listening of your word? Would you enable our understanding of it and then ultimately our application of it? For your name's sake. May Jesus Christ be praised this morning. Amen. This psalm is simply structured. It is a call to worship in verses 1 and 2, followed by reasons for that worship in verse 3. And the pattern is then repeated with a second call to worship in verse 4, followed again by more reasons in verse 5. Thus, in this psalm of thanksgiving, we are told how and why to thank God. With the first two verses, the psalmist begins with how, by listing three things that should mark our worship of God. First, we are are told to make a joyful noise to the Lord. The words, make a joyful noise, can be translated shout. As in Psalm 66, 1, where it reads, to shout for joy to God. In other words, uh, be loud and exuberant. 
In fact, the Hebrew word used here carries the idea of splitting the ears with sound. Our worship, therefore, should be robust and filled with joy as you might make a loud and joyful noise when celebrating a personal accomplishment or when cheering your favorite sports team, how much more worthy of our exuberance is the Lord our God. Second, we are to serve the Lord with gladness. Serving in this instance is not slaving, of course. It's not compulsory or obligatory. It's, uh, it's rather willing. It's a way of rendering honor to God. Certainly this can apply to our to your service in the church and in the various ministries of the church, but serving God is not confined to the church only. You can serve the Lord as a student in school, even when studying or interacting with uh, teachers or peers. You can serve the Lord at work, in the way you treat people and how you handle your assigned responsibilities. You can serve the Lord at, at home, and how you are with the members of your family. You see, when mindful of the desire to honor God, even the mundane things like running errands or grocery shopping or doing laundry become avenues of service and worship. Scripture says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God our Father through Him. Serving, then, is an expression of appreciation and becomes a means of gratitude to the degree that we serve with gladness. Are you serving gladly today? Third, we are to come into His presence with singing. You sang well this morning. Have you ever wondered why we sing as a church each week? It really is quite, from an outside perspective, it really can appear quite perplexing. Who are these people who gather together to sing? And this is why. Because singing to God is different than speaking about God. Music and song are gifts from God that touch different parts of our affections. When I sing to God and hear you sing, my thoughts of God and the emotions stirred are stimulated and released in different ways as our individual voices form one collective anthem of praise. You know what I mean? That's why we spend nearly as much time singing each Sunday as we do in Scripture. Because Scripture itself values the divine gift of music and song. The music is not worship, of course, nor is it to be worshipped. It is rather a means of worship that warms the heart. Isn't it interesting that, that at the center of the, our Bible is the book of Psalms? A 150-piece songbook meant to inform and inspire the singing of God's people. Now, this refers to the corporate worship of God, to times when we enter into His presence together, but even when we're not together. 
When you're going about your day and the respective events and to-dos of your week, you are in His presence still, for He is not confined to a building or a specific time or place on Sundays, but is present everywhere and is promised to be with you always. Do you realize, loved ones, do you realize that when you woke up this morning, the Lord was with you and He was inviting you into His presence? Even as He does throughout the day, And throughout the week, bidding your heart continually, bidding your heart to draw near. In the opening verses, if the opening verses tell us how to give thanks, verse 3 tells us why. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Here we are urged to know the godness of God. Now, I don't want you to skip over this too quickly or, or kind of assume that, yeah, I got that, I know that. I think there's something for us here, even this morning, to just receive the godness of God. Doesn't it sometimes seem, seem, like someone other than God has taken over. Doesn't it sometimes seem like presidents or earthly kings or rulers of nations, those whose decisions affect so many that they're the really the ones in charge? Or doesn't it seem at times like celebrities and entertainers are worshipped as gods? Given how their many fans just incessantly fawn over them. Or when trying to make sense of current events and world news, doesn't it sometimes seem like evil is gaining the upper hand? When I was praying through this psalm earlier this week, just at the beginning of my week, the beginning of my preparations, just reading it and reflecting on it and beginning to gather my thoughts around it, I had to pause at this sentence because as our society seems to grow increasingly godless, it's comforting to know that there is a God and the Lord is Him. I thought about the recent shootings and the random acts of violence, the incredible number of sexual harassment allegations surfacing by the day. Everywhere you turn, we hear of people doing terrible things without any apparent fear of repercussion as if they are the self-appointed divine. But they're not. And we're not. Because our God reigns. Know that the Lord, He is God. And it is He who made us and we are His. We are created by Him and for Him in His image to image Him. This creator-creature relationship means He is the determiner of what's right and true and that all people are ultimately accountable to Him and will give an account. If He were not the Creator, we'd have no need to thank Him. But because He is, He is worthy of our worship. We are His people, it says. And the sheep of His pasture... Here the psalmist is stressing the unique bond between God and those who know God in a personal way. You see, when you come into a saving relationship with God, 
whereby you acknowledge and embrace His Lordship over your life, that not only is He the Lord, but also your Lord, you become, as it were, a beloved sheep within His flock, and He begins to shepherd you as His very own. Jesus once assured, I am the good shepherd. He came to us, He lived, died, rose for us. He lives today to care for us. He knows His sheep and His sheep know Him. Whatever may happen to us, we are His. Whatever trial comes our way, we are His. Whatever affliction we experience, we are His. Whatever losses along the way, we are His. In triumph or tribulation, in celebration or sadness, in times of plenty or little, we are His. We are His. As Psalm 23 so famously begins, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So enter His gates with thanksgiving, verse 4. And His courts with praise give thanks to Him and bless His name. Yet again, the psalmist calls us to worship God and mentions these two related aspects of worship. Have you ever thought about the relation between thankfulness and praise. The gates were part of the outer wall of the temple complex. The people would enter through the gates into the courts, progressing from the outside to the inside, moving closer into the presence of God with each step. The idea is that as we approach God with a spirit of gratitude, that lends itself to praise because we are naturally prone to praise what we enjoy, aren't we? And we enjoy what we appreciate. Back and forth we go between thanksgiving and praise. On one hand, thanking God for what He's done while praising Him for who He is. And the more we learn about who God is, the more appreciative we are for what He's done. So thankfulness and praise conjoin, even as the gifts of God collectively point to Him as the giver himself. For every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So then the good gifts of God demonstrate the goodness of God himself, and thus we come to verse 5. For the Lord is good. And His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. The word good, it seems so basic, so elementary, so uncomplicated and unadorned. It's not a very flashy word. Maybe we would have chosen a different word. But the beauty of this word and the beauty of this verse lies not in its extravagance, but in its simplicity and ease of understanding. 
The simple point being made is that you can trust the Lord because He is God and because He is good. He is a good God all the time in every way. God is good, we're told, because His steadfast love endures forever. This translates the Hebrew word hesed, which refers to the covenant love of God, meaning that God's love for me and for you and for all who know Him in covenant relationship depends not on our ability to get it right, but on God's assurance that He will. Did you hear that? Not on our ability to get it right, but on God's assurance that He will. Jesus once told a parable about a man who had a hundred sheep and one strayed and it went its own way. And what would the man do then? What, what would he do about this straying sheep? He had 99 others after all. But because every sheep mattered to that man, he searched far and wide for that one lost soul. And what was it that motivated his search? Why would he deal with all the hassle and inconvenience and sacrifice and searching and ultimately saving that one lost sheep? Was it his reputation he was concerned for? What the others would think if he lost a sheep? Was it a monetary concern that drove his search? That that sheep had had monetary value? Was it because he wanted to find that sheep and give it a piece of its mind and teach it a lesson it would never forget? No. It was just love. A man was simply motivated by the steadfast love of God because the parable is about Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. We know God is good because as the psalmist states, His faithfulness endures to all generations. In this world of constant change where things so quickly grow obsolete, isn't it good to know that there is refuge in God who remains the same yesterday, today, and forever? People, I want to I just quickly recap the faithfulness of God in your life. Look behind you and remember what God has done. Consider the twists and turns your life has taken. Some that owe to your own ignorance or foolishness and some that were entirely beyond your control. Yet here you sit, literally, here you sit in the congregation of God's people this morning, testifying by your very presence here that He is faithful. Look further back to the time of Christ. Look upon His life, perfectly lived, poured out as a living sacrifice for you. See His death. See in His death the love of God and in His resurrection, God's faithfulness to raise you along with Christ. See in the ascension of Jesus the sure promise that He reigns over all things. But I want you to look even further still and see how God, even in the time before Christ, before Christ incarnate, 
Look back to that time, how God remained faithful to His people throughout every rebellious and stiff-necked generation. I want you to see Him leading His people with a cloud of Uh, with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and then look back to the very beginning, to the very beginning and into eternity past, knowing that every single one of your days was written in God's book before the foundation of the world. Has He not been faithful? And then I want you to turn from looking backward to gaze ahead at what the future holds. We know not every detail, but there is more than enough in Scripture to assure us that ours is, to put it mildly, a very promising future. We know that Jesus is coming again to right every wrong. We know He will take us to the eternal home He is preparing for us even now. We know there will be no sorrow or sadness there, no sin to speak of. We know that all creation awaits the full and final revealing of the children of God when we will dwell with God in glory forever. O you who trust in the Lord, yours is a past where the waves of God's faithfulness are carrying you one by one to the shores of heaven. Even now, even today, even in whatever you are presently facing, you are a child of God, and if God is for you, I ask who can be against you? Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. The Spirit of God Himself dwells in you to help you and comfort you and provide for you and lead you onward. He who has been faithful will be faithful still. But God's faithfulness, though God's faithfulness, does not guarantee a carefree life. Certainly, it assures you that you can cast the cares of life on Him who cares for you. So make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that He is God. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give Him thanks. Bless His name. You see, the seven imperatives in these five verses make the application of this psalm pretty obvious. And it can all be adequately summarized in just one word. Worship. Worship the Lord. I want to tell you about a man named Raymond Edmond. Anybody recognize that name? Anyone? Raymond Edmond was a missionary, a college president, an educator an author, and a friend to countless Christians and seekers alike. Billy Graham once called him the most unforgettable Christian he ever met. 
Edmund served as chancellor of Wheaton College for many years. He died in 1967 in the most appropriate setting imaginable, though surely traumatic to those who were there. He passed on while preaching the chapel service, and his topic was worship. That morning, Dr. Edmund shared with his listeners a personal story. It involved how one day prior he had met with the king of Ethiopia. And in order to have an audience with the king, he had to observe strict protocol. If he didn't meet and follow through on each criterion, he wouldn't be judged worthy of coming into the king's presence. And Dr. Edmund then drew a parallel uh, with attending weekday chapel services at Wheaton. He said, you have an audience with the king of kings. The ruler of Ethiopia or any other nation would fall on his face and cast his crown in the presence of the Almighty. And Dr. Edmund wondered in those moments if those in the audience really understood or were paying attention just how awesome is the act of worship. So he went on to offer practical suggestions of how to make chapel more meaningful, how to come into chapel with a better realization of being in the transforming presence of God. How to encourage others, how to go out from chapel and encourage others to worship God. And just like that, in the, in the very midst of his wise and godly counsel, in the course of that lone chapel service, Edmund died. And passed into glory. It was the last and greatest sermon illustration he ever shared. And I share that with you this morning because there is another application of Psalm 100 that isn't as plainly stated but just as central to the text, and we mustn't miss it. It's found in the words, all the earth, of verse 1. And it concerns our witness as worshipers of God. You see, by addressing this psalm to all the earth, the psalmist is extending to everyone in places everywhere the invitation to come and worship God. And we must do the same. Like Dr. Edmund, we must worship well. We must understand worship. We must understand the transforming presence of the Almighty. And we must invite others to join in. We, we want to invest our lives and even expend our final breath in this endeavor, for the call to enjoy and honor the Lord reaches out from the church to the world at large. G. Campbell Morgan once said of this psalm, the witness of God's people is to invite the outsider into the place of privilege. We must do that. And I think Thanksgiving Day this season of thanksgiving is a choice opportunity. 
Sally and I, we are our family. We are, it's our turn. We're, we're hosting Thanksgiving in our home this year. About 30 or so people. And I was overwhelmed at that prospect at first. Not have the the most thankful of attitudes at first. And in all honesty, there are moments that still get the best of me, and I still am a little, at times, a little grumpy and overwhelmed. But I am grateful to God for family and for the kinship we share with many of our family members as children in God's family. And yet in my family, as in yours, I'm sure there are certain members who do not know the Lord. And they do not know the immense privilege of worshiping Him. And so for me this week has been a journey through Psalm 100 where God has been applying this this truth to my life, to my heart. Because these people that we've invited into our homes... I want to invite them into something even more special as God gives opportunity. I want to testify to all who gather that the Lord is God and the Lord is good. You see, gratitude grows as we remember who God is and what He's done. And so may God bless you May God bless you this Thanksgiving week. May God bless your family gatherings. If you're traveling, may God bless your travels. If you're hosting, may God bless your hosting. May God bless you as you rejoice together in his name. Amen. God, we do pray for your blessing upon us. We thank you for blessing us even this morning, even now in your word. I would pray that this week of preparation, I pray that we would not be, Lord, I just had this image pop into my mind that that with all the preparations that go into Thanksgiving week and specifically Thanksgiving Day, I pray that we would not be consumed by them and like Martha, miss the opportunity to worship. And so help us to be mindful of our preparations, but even more mindful of you. Make us grateful, make grat- cause gratitude to grow in our hearts, and then our times with family and friends, may you, may you provide us with opportunity to just testify to your goodness. And thus invite the outsiders into the place of privilege. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen.